Welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 23, Abdication. The spring and summer of 1918 had been quiet in Germany, as the nation held its breath for the result of the last German offensive in the West. The defeat of Russia had demonstrated tangible progress in the war, and if the Entente fell, all the suffering could maybe somehow be worth it, and things could maybe be restored back to 1914 conditions. The Entente didn't fall, though. In fact, the German army first overextended itself, and then finally crumbled. It began retreating back to Germany, its resistance increasingly weakening as the days ticked by. Hindenburg was at a loss what to do, and Ludendorff swung wildly between depression and mania. By the end of September, the pair sat down with the Kaiser in a very awkward meeting. They had to explain to him that the war was lost, that all the previous victories no longer mattered, and that the expedient thing to do would be to form a government backed by the SPD. They wanted the SPD specifically because that party was perceived as the traditional opposition to the imperial government, and thus wasn't discredited in the same way the other parts of the Reichstag were. Sure, the party had overwhelmingly supported the war effort up to this point, but once an enemy of the autocracy, always an enemy of the autocracy. The proposed government would be led by Prince Max of Baden one of the Kaiser's cousins. Politically, he was a limousine liberal, which is actually not an anachronism, as limousines had actually been invented at that point, but he was also a prince, so the conservatives were only a little paranoid of him. It fell to him to offer peace, directed first at President Woodrow Wilson of the United States, who they believed would be the kindest Entente leader to approach. Wilson replied that he expected the autocracy to be dismantled as a condition for peace meaning the Junkers, meaning the military establishment, meaning guys like Hindenburg and Ludendorff. This angered both of them in a major way, because they had expected to keep the old social order intact at the very least. They started drawing up plans to continue the fight, and Hindenburg even signed a letter in response, slamming Wilson and calling on the army to fight to the end. The letter wasn't actually sent out, but a telegraphist who identified with the USPD made a copy and sent it to his representative in the Reichstag, where it was read aloud to everybody. Naturally, it pissed off Prince Max, as he had not been informed of the letter and was only recently installed as the head of government. He contacted his cousin and told the Kaiser that he would walk if Ludendorff wasn't fired. I know that Hindenburg was the guy who signed the letter, but Max knew who wrote it. Kaiser complied with the ultimatum, and on October 26th, it was his turn to arrange another awkward meeting with the generals. Ludendorff, not seeing any way out and probably glad to be rid of the burden that was shattering his psyche, resigned. He packed his bags and headed out for a temporary exile into Sweden. He'll be back, but he's just going to hide out for a while to let the heat die down. Two days later, a German officer in another branch of service made a decision that tipped the nation from crisis to revolution. Admiral Franz von Hipper decided to take his navy for one last spin into the North Sea. The German High Seas Fleet had fought the one major naval battle at Jutland in the entire war. This massive fleet's sailors had been holed up in dock for the duration of the conflict otherwise, maintaining their ships and being bored. Plus, their food supply had been getting worse along with the rest of the nations, while the discipline of their officers got more tyrannical. Now, at this stage, Hipper wanted to take his boats out to sea and force a battle that could tip the scales at the peace table more towards Germany. How that would work, 
I have no idea. And neither did the sailors serving under him. They clearly understood that if they engaged the Royal Navy, that they were all dead men. And worse, dead men dying for a cause that had already been lost. On the 30th, three ships mutinied and forced Hipper to cancel whatever suicide mission he had had in mind. He sent loyal crews aboard the ships and took them back, but the fiasco wasn't over yet. The fleet was dispersed and some of the ships went to Kiel. That northern port city was deep USPD territory, and sending radicalized sailors there might not have been a great idea. On November 3rd, 20,000 sailors and civilians alike marched to the prison holding some of the mutineers from Hipper's aborted operation. The crowd demanded their release and made calls for revolutionary action. The local commander of the prison directed his troops to fire above the crowd to no effect. Then he ordered them to fire into the crowd, killing eight and wounding 30. Clearly, a line had been crossed, and the revolutionaries resolved not to back down. The sailors formed councils with the workers and seized the major warships in port. The body-controlling keel swelled to 40,000, and the local naval commander was forced to flee when sufficient reinforcements from the army weren't forthcoming. This was not only a major blow to the establishment, but it also signaled the appearance of one of the decisive figures on the right to combating the burgeoning revolution, Gustav Noske. Noske was a member of the SPD, but over the years, especially the war years, he had taken a hard right swing in his politics. He stuck with the party, though, and would prove to be an effective wolf in sheep's clothing. He was dispatched from Berlin to try and talk the revolutionaries down. Arriving on the evening of November 4th, he was greeted with rapturous joy from the revolutionaries. Keep in mind the old leadership problem. The masses had taken Kiel, but had no set platform to push or a leader to guide them to it. And the SPD leadership still had its socialist reputation, so people assumed he had come to help. Speaking to a crowd the next day, Noske emphasized that a return to order was needed to begin the process of settling grievances, mostly sending around basic things like food and living conditions. Over the next few days, he shuttled all over town, threatening those who demanded revolution with the prospect of civil war or foreign invasions, and accepting the demands that could be met. He assumed command of the councils formed to lead the revolutionaries and used them to legitimize his dismantling of the revolt in Kiel. A single character of strong will and personality had managed to stymie a revolution in a major city, and peacefully. Unfortunately for Noske, he couldn't be everywhere at once, and the news coming out of Kiel set off a reaction in other port cities. On November 5th, Lubeck was seized by revolutionaries fronted by sailors as well. The next day saw Hamburg and Bremen fall in the same manner. On the 7th, inland cities like Cologne, Munich, and Hanover came under, under the control of the revolutionaries. By the 8th, Berlin seemed to be the only major city still holding out. The reason for this was that the leadership of the USPD, considerably more conservative than Luxembourg or Leibniz, feared making a clear break with the main SPD party and backing the revolution. For his part, Friedrich Ebert, the SPD leader, pledged to Prince Max he would never support the revolutionaries and that he hated the movement like sin. And this was the guy conservatives feared as a Bolshevik. One bit of Devil's advocacy I'll do on his part is that he did lose two sons during the war, so by this point he was also working to ensure their sacrifice meant something. All the tragic evidence to the contrary. But Ebert was a realist. The old order was going away to some degree or another, and adjustments would have to be made. On the 6th, Max and Ebert met with Ludendorff's replacement, 
General Wilhelm Gruner. The trio had arranged that the Kaiser would have to go, and an armistice signed immediately. Germany was falling apart, and they had to hustle the army back home to restore order. On the 8th, Max called up his cousin and told him he'd have to abdicate. The Kaiser waffled for a short time, but events would soon overtake him. On November 9th, the USPD could no longer hold back their worker constituents and declared a general strike in Berlin. Over the previous several days, deserting sailors had been returning to their homes to help spread the revolutionary word, and a number of them had made their way to Berlin by this point. Authority in the capital broke down the same day. The workers and sailors were bolstered by the local army garrison, who joined their ranks. This was far more than a final straw, but while this was happening, Hindenburg and Gruner went over to meet with the Kaiser. Keep in mind, the army high command and the Kaiser's court were in the city of Spa, in occupied Belgium. The Kaiser was only moderately aware of how bad things had gotten, and the generals were getting news by telegraph and phone. Kaiser met them with hopes of taking the army back to Germany, but the generals immediately doused those hopes. Hindenburg broke down in tears, so Groner had to break the news. The Kaiser had to abdicate. The army was done, and it wasn't going to follow the Kaiser back home. In fact, the Kaiser really shouldn't go back home. Hindenburg suggested he make a beeline over to neutral Holland, and hopefully a quiet exile. The Kaiser packed up, and without telling his generals goodbye, left for Holland. The empire was over. Back in Berlin, it was also time to end Prince Max's brief spell as chancellor. He had been installed to wind down the war, which he had done. Now he was going to take leave of the revolutionary capital. He, in turn, installed Ebert as acting chancellor and bade him good luck in reinventing the nation. Most of the cities were in control of a revolution he did not care for, including the streets he looked out upon from the chancellor's office. But he received a phone call that night from General Groner. Groner wanted to get two commitments from him. One, that Ebert was willing to stand firm as a civilian leader while the army restored order, and two, that he was committed to fighting back Bolshevism. Ebert confirmed he was good on both counts. The position of the army, especially its officers, would be protected. Ebert, for his part, slid directly into the role of collaborator for the old autocracy. On the 10th were leadership elections for the ad hoc mix of Union forces and USPD leaders that held the capital. The main SPD press had been beating a steady message of avoiding a civil war at all costs, while simultaneously assuring the workers the main SPD was still firmly a socialist movement with the reformation of society at the forefront of their minds. Not only was this an excellent delaying tactic, but the rudderless unions and would-be revolutionaries bought it. All the while, Ebert waited for Groner to return the army back to the Reich and put down the risings across the country. This came at a cost. The public display of solidarity, no matter how shallow or false, would cast Ebert and the SPD in with the true leftists going forward among the other segments of society. So, despite the reality behind the scenes, the conservative ecosystem would lump these moderates in with their paranoid Bolshevik nightmares. If you haven't gathered by now, Ebert was a little too timid, a little too nationalist for any sort of revolution. It would become important later, though, as when people sought to explain how Germany was laid so low, they claimed Ebert and his Marxist gang seized power in those critical days at the end of the war. In reality, though, Ebert was coordinating with the Prussian autocrats to delay and eventually strangle what he saw as merely a mob. 
Keep in mind from the previous episode that much of the German labor movement had existed in proximity with the bourgeois, and as such had taken on many of their values. Ebert was a prime example, and he did not care for the rough character of the Berlin workers. His means of salvation through the army would wind up disappointing him in the short term, though. Groner and Hindenburg had assumed that the army returning back home from the Western Front would be able to restore the old autocracy, or at least some form of it. They were rudely surprised when the army began falling apart as soon as it hit the German border. The units had held together up to that point, but that was merely to ensure they all made it back. Once that was accomplished, they all went their separate ways, usually still in field gear and with their rifles. The vast majority of them had little interest in putting down assertive workers. Instead, they were really looking just to get away from the army. Ultimately, this left a power vacuum in Berlin, because, sure, the workers were technically rebels, but Ebert was occupying the chancellor's office under the flimsiest of pretexts, and no elections had been held. Without the backing of a cohesive army, there was nothing to say that Ebert would continue on as the leader, or that the workers couldn't assume control of their own destiny. The first tentative move on the state of affairs came on December 6th, when a body of soldiers attempted to arrest worker leaders and corral Ebert into acting in a more dictatorial manner. The group succeeded in murdering a handful of civilians, and while Ebert passively acknowledged their concerns, he declined to take an authoritarian hand. The body of soldiers, unsure how to proceed, ultimately dispersed in some confusion. Conveniently, the officers who had supposedly ordered the modest rising had all apparently vanished, if they had existed at all. The SPD itself blocked future investigations into who had ordered the incident, and rumors swirled that it was the moderates' own leadership who had grown frustrated with the workers' councils controlling the day-to-day -day business in the capital. This incident heightened the paranoia in Berlin, which also coincided with the arrival of a 3,000-man-strong unit of Marines sent in from Kiel by Noske. He had managed to convince them to uphold Ebert's regime, but upon arriving in Berlin, their sympathies swung more towards the workers. They would quickly become a force to be reckoned with on the streets of Berlin, and even took up residence in the Kaiser's former palace in the center of the city. A fateful moment occurred on the 10th of December, when a contingent of demobilizing troops marched through Berlin. They were ragged and disheveled, but nevertheless, Ebert went through great pains to applaud their sacrifice and asserted that they had returned home unbeaten. This, as you might imagine, fertilized the seed of the idea among Germans that the Imperial Army had not been beaten in the field, but rather had been undermined back home. Ebert himself did not realize that he would be cast as the very reason the army had lost, and that in failing to face that reality, he inadvertently helped create a myth that would ruin his country. And even in the short term, it won him no friends. He could not bring himself to understand that the conservative element of the country would never accept him or count him as a true ally. He was merely taking the fall for the disaster of defeat, while those previously in a position of authority licked their wounds. Ebert mistakenly counted himself part of the establishment and turned a blind eye to the right. The situation in the capital did not remain static afterwards, either. A conglomeration of worker and soldier councils agreed that elections would have to be held, preferably as soon as January. At the same time, these councils were throwing around all sorts of ideas, including dissolving the formal army and instead creating a people's military. Upon hearing about this, Hindenburg and Groner freaked the hell out, and Groner shuttled over to Berlin to bring Ebert back into line. The Chancellor acquiesced readily enough, 
but this only damaged his standing among the workers still more once word got out. It was overshadowed, though, as the revolution finally spiraled into violence a month and a half in. On the 23rd of December, the unit of Marines occupying the Kaiser's old palace marched out. They had been demanding back pay for the past month, and had finally gotten tired of waiting. Understandably, they had been accused of being a simple street gang looking to extort the fragile government. Which was pretty true, but you have to admire their gumption. They surrounded Ebert's office and laid siege. The Chancellor had one option, which was to use the telephone line running over to the military headquarters, now set up in the central German city of Kassel. The army promised relief and deployed a detachment of troops from Potsdam to Berlin. Only 800 troops could be mustered, this out of an army formerly of millions. Confrontation between the soldiers and sailors was an odd one. The soldiers managed to march into Berlin with no problem and reached Ebert, but the sailors followed along with them side by side. Ebert found himself stuck in his office, sitting between a contingent of opposing troopers and marines. The idea was put forward for the two sides to simply separate and occupy opposing ends of town. This was agreed to, and the two sides split. But of course, the army officers intended to renege on this deal and attempted to surround and storm the Marines' position. They tried this on the morning of December 24th, but the Marines held out. Or at least, held out long enough for Berlin citizens to come out of their homes, wondering just what the hell was going on. And in realizing what the troopers were doing, the crowd surrounded them and compelled them to surrender. The detachment of troopers totally fell apart in the face of this civilian opposition, and all of a sudden, Ebert and Groner didn't have military recourse to fall back upon. Most of the army had fallen apart, and this unit, which had held together up to this point, had dispersed on first contact with, with civilians. Groner realized that the regular army was a totally spent force and could not be counted upon at all. But he did have one more card left to play. As already organizing out of sight of the major cities, the Free Corps had begun to organize. Now, if all this downright archaic German social history doesn't ring a bell with you, the Free Corps actually might. They're usually associated pretty hard with the Nazis, and are often remembered as a precursor to the brown shirts and stormtroopers. And that's a fair association, as a large segment of the Free Corps did link up with the Nazis later on down the road. At this exact moment, however, they served different masters with slightly different motivations. The Free Corps started as paramilitary groups that were given tacit state sanction to operate on the streets, ostensibly to restore law and order. In reality, they were there to choke out the social revolution happening around them. This whole thing got started with the disintegration of the army, which created a space for non-traditional actors to come to the fore. A relatively mid-level officer, General Ludwig von Marker, watched his division of soldiers melt away into almost nothing during these days of revolution. But not quite nothing. He got together with his officers and remaining troops and envisioned an ideologically committed force composed of the middle and upper classes, as well as rural conservatives. It would not be a mass army, and this was by design. The urban masses were busy throwing in with Bolshevism and tearing down the nation. Their calls for democracy weakened Germany at a moment when it was at the mercy of foreign powers. And the example of the various army units composed of conscripts melting away in the face of having to engage with their own countrymen was an informative one. The men recruited would have to be committed to the idea of restoring order, even if it meant firing into a crowd. Now, the old manners and customs under the Kaiser really wouldn't do in this new environment either. 
The divide between officers and common soldiers had been wide during the war and had bred resentment and affected morale. In the Free Corps, that divide would have to be bridged, and the vague love of country that bound soldiers together would be upgraded to a love of a strong and structured country. You'll remember in the fascism introduction that a key feature of the ideology was not so much to remove class divides as turn the energies of each class towards empowering the state instead. A similar idea was in action here, as while the officers and soldiers were expected to communicate with and treat each other better, their positions were not truly changed. Instead, the communal distance between the two groups was reduced to make achieving their authoritarian goals easier. To that end, Marker and his team secluded themselves in Salzkorn, about 60 miles east of Dortmund. It was a decently isolated, remote part of the country, suitable to establish a base for a new paramilitary group. Marker selected combat veterans as the leaders of the new group, officially called the Volunteer Rifleman's Corps. He avoided recruiting troopers openly antagonistic to the new regime. After all, he was expected to be riding to its rescue on General Groner's behalf before long. This little distinction would quickly fall by the wayside as other Free Corps units recruited with no such standards, and more rowdy units would start popping up in short order. For the time being, though, this was an attempt at a professionalized militia that operated as an actual military unit. Marker even started applying some new ideas he had learned in the war, like eliminating distinctions between troopers such as artillerymen and infantry, and making heavier gear like machine guns and mortars a normal component of a unit. Before, they were treated as more specialized items when being deployed. He was also able to draw from a body of soldiers who were both combat-experienced and very traumatized by the previous war. Soldiers who were in no way ready to transition back into civilian life. At the time of the regular army falling apart in Berlin, Marker had about 4,000 troops ready. This force was a far cry from even the modest division he had commanded during the war, but they were reliable and experienced combat troops, which was better than what was available to Groner at this point. On the 4th of January, 1919, the force arrived in Zosen, 20 miles south of Berlin, and presented themselves to Ebert and Noske, who had arrived in the capital from Kiel to take control of the police forces. And by this time, Marker wasn't alone either. Other officers had followed his example and started setting up quasi-private militia forces on their own initiative. While the Volunteer Rifleman's Corps was by most measures a professional force, most of the other groups dispensed with recruitment standards. Main qualification to joining the expanding Free Corps units was a hatred of leftism in general and revolution in particular. Most of their recruitment came from discharged veterans as well, but they also attracted young men just coming of age. Many young men had assumed they too would get to join in the Great War once they were old enough to join the army, but the armistice deprived them of their chance to prove their mettle. Given the absolute horror of the trenches, that might sound odd, but these were still very patriotic days, and for many youths, the outbreak of peace deprived them of their true coming-of-age experience. They grew up knowing many who had served, and probably some who had died. Now they were being denied this shared social experience. They would never be heroes. The Free Corps at least offered a chance at a semblance of this. As for the veterans that made up the bulk of the Free Corps, well, as I've described, they're a mixed bag. Yes, many are displaced soldiers just looking for some stability, and maybe a return to the environment of violence they had become used to. For some, the Free Corps also represented an opportunity to assert themselves in a world that had slipped away from them. They had lost their war, and coming back home to an impoverished Germany 
probably made them realize that they were not going to be rewarded for their efforts, neither materially nor socially, as they might have imagined. They would stick together as soldiers, not just out of hatred for the environment they had returned home to, but also to protect their own interests. In the latter part of December, these groups organized and started making their way to Berlin at the behest of Noske and the army. By early January, they were taking up positions around the city. And that's where we'll pick up again next week, as the clash between revolution and counter-revolution gets underway. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.